I think that was about the, the longest offering we've ever had, but it was good because we never get to hear the organ played, so I'm thankful for that. Well, who was the greatest scientist of the 20th century or perhaps of all time? I heard someone say Jesus. Good call. I like that. But I think most people would answer in the 20th century, Albert Einstein. Indeed, Einstein was the greatest, the most popular, the most world-changing scientist of recent history. And now today, just the word Einstein is associated with genius. At the same time, who may have been one of the worst husbands of the 20th century? Albert Einstein. Most people know Einstein for his groundbreaking theories, his scientific accomplishments, but on the personal front, things weren't always so spectacular. Einstein's first wife was Maleva Merrick, herself a groundbreaking scientist in Europe. They gave birth to a daughter, but they gave her up for adoption. They had two sons after that whom they kept. And after about 11 years of marriage, though, Einstein knew things were on the rocks. He was, he was seeing his marriage starting to disintegrate. However, he believed that they should stay together for the kids. So what kind of brilliant plan do you think Einstein hatched in order to save his marriage? You would expect the one who unlocked the secrets of the universe to be able to unlock the secrets of marriage, right? Well, not so much. Fearing the end, Einstein resorted to presenting his wife a list of demands that she had to follow if they were to stay together peacefully for the kids. To the pragmatic Einstein, this made perfect logical sense. The list was entirely, though, one-sided, and it just made clear that he viewed his wife as a slave at worst, as a roommate at best. Now, you're probably curious to hear the list. What was his list of demands? Well, I won't disappoint you. Let me read for you Einstein's list of demands for his wife. Quote, you will, you will make sure, number one, that my clothes and laundry are kept in good order. Number two, that I will receive my three meals regularly in my room. Number three, that my bedroom and study are kept neat, and especially that my desk is left for my use only. He goes on, you will renounce all personal relations with me insofar as they are not completely necessary for social reasons. Specifically, you will forego, number one, my sitting at home with you, and number two, my going out or traveling with you. You will obey the following points in your relations with me. Number one, you will not expect any intimacy from me, nor will you reproach me in any way. Number two, you will stop talking to me if I request it. And number three, you will leave my bedroom or study immediately without protest if I request it. Finally, you will undertake not to belittle me in front of our children, either through words or behavior, end quote. Pretty amazing, right? Initially, Einstein's wife humored these demands, but after a few months, she left with her two sons. They remained married for five years, ending up divorcing in 1919, but by then, Einstein had already moved on to his next wife. Brilliant scientist, not so brilliant husband. Now, it is right to condemn such a list because this is not how the wife should be treated nor how the husband should regard her. Husbands are not to be slave masters over their wives. Yet in the past century, isn't this how the world has really come to understand or, or misunderstand 
Christianity. I've known people who truly think that the Bible subscribes to such a low view of women, both in their identity and in their treatment. Regarding their identity, the women are not equal to men. They are less important and valued overall. And regarding their treatment, women are also not equal to men. They are to be afforded less honor and less respect, some would think. The husband sits in authority on his throne. The wife cowers before him. The husband lords over his wife, barking orders at her. The wife obeys his every command. The husband demands and takes and gets everything he wants, and the wife simply gives and gets nothing in return. I've actually met people who misunderstand Christianity that much, where they think that's, that's the picture the Bible gives of marriage. Yet this couldn't be further from the truth, and we have to take a stand for the truth, both in our message and in our example. The Bible doesn't teach this, but instead puts forth a high view of women, both in their identity and in their treatment. Last week we looked we looked at this high view of women from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, as we're making our way through 1 Peter. And there we saw their important identity. Yes, wives are given a different role than husbands in marriage, a different function. God gave to husbands the role of head or of leader, and to wives he gave the role of helper. It's reflecting the order of creation. But husband and wife are equal in their identity before God. They're equally loved, equally valued, equally prized in God's eyes. Contrary to what the world might think, the Bible presents a high and a noble view of women. The same is true regarding the treatment of women. And that's what we're going to discover today from our text. Women are not to be demeaned, degraded, disrespected, defrauded. Instead, they are to be treasured, prized, valued, honored, cherished, and loved. Show me one woman who doesn't want that. Yet this is what the Bible actually prescribes, a high view of the treatment of women. Like I said, we're going to see this in our text today in 1 Peter. If you haven't already, you can turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. In 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7, Peter gives God's strategy for the home. This is how believers are to live in the home. The focus of verses 1 through 6 is on believing wives from the slant of being married to unbelieving husbands. It was common in the ancient world for wives to be married or to come to to convert to Christ apart from their husbands and be married to therefore unbelievers. Hasn't really changed much today. And these six verses gave us seven instructions for the wives in fulfilling their God-given role. And that was our focus last week. There's one verse left, though, in this little section, verse 7, which is devoted to the husbands, in particular how they treat their wives. Excuse me, although husbands receive just one verse, don't confuse the brevity of this instruction with insufficiency. It's not. Peter concisely and carefully addresses the husband's role, focusing on the treatment of the wife. And as we spend our time unraveling this verse... We'll find such an amazing and high view of how women are to be regarded and treated from Scripture. And far from being demeaned, God says they are to be honored. Wives are to be honored. 1 Peter 3.7 then joins Ephesians 5 as being the most important instructions for husbands in the Bible. It is concise and succinct, yet sufficient and life-changing. 
So read along with me now, 1 Peter chapter 3, just look at verse 7. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker since she is woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. If you're like most people, when you read this verse, right away you have questions. What exactly does this all mean? It's to be expected, this verse is jam-packed with interpretive questions. What, What does this mean? What does that mean? These are some of the most useful instructions for husbands in all of Scripture. Yet, like most gems, you've got to dig to find them. And in this verse, we've got to dig to find the meaning. Thankfully, we've got the time. We're just looking at one verse this morning. And so that's what we're going to be doing. And before we dig in, though, let me just say, obviously, this this text is for primarily the husbands. It's it's really cited in at the husbands in the room. No one's going to get more out of this than them. But whether you're married or unmarried, male or female, don't tune out these instructions. This may not directly apply to you, but, but God wants us to feed on the whole counsel of his word. Whether this is for you or for another, get invested in what God has to say about the family. At the very least, equip yourself to be able to rightly represent what the Bible actually says about these marriage roles because the last thing we need is another uninformed Christian. That being said, we're going to get into it. We're going to dig through 1 Peter 3.7 today. And we're going to find specifically God's two instructions for men in the home. God's two instructions for men in the home, a counterpart to the seven instructions for women we learned last week. God's two instructions for men in the home. The first is simply this, give consideration. Give consideration. Look at the first half of verse 7. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman. Let me stop there. Live with your wives in an understanding way. That's how it starts. This is the first main verb of verse 7. It reflects the first main instruction for men. Live understandingly, or literally, live according to knowledge. The verb, it's in the present tense, to be done continually. It carries the force of an imperative or or a command. So this is a non-negotiable for husbands, to live understandingly. We just have to ask our first question, what does this mean? What does it really mean to live with your wife in an understanding way? Well, that first question, it's not, thankfully, too hard to answer. To live with your wives in an understanding way literally means to live with them according to knowledge. Write that down if you're taking notes this morning, because that's really going to help us get to the bottom of this verse. To live with your wife in an understanding way means to live with her according to knowledge. Literally, that's how this phrase reads in the Greek, according to knowledge. All right, so we have a new question now. What does it mean for the husband to live with his wife according to knowledge? It just means that the husband is to take certain pieces of information and knowledge into account, into consideration 
when living with his wife. He is to gather knowledge about his wife, which in turn should lead him to live with her in a considerate and understanding manner. So we're left with just one final question. What kind of knowledge are we talking about? What kind of knowledge is relevant? Are we talking small personal things like her favorite color, her favorite flower? Are we talking about just data like her social security number, her date of birth? Are we talking trivial things like how many hairs are on her head? And what kind of knowledge are we getting at here? Peter does not explicitly specify what kind of knowledge he's talking about. But from the context, it's pretty clear we're talking about any knowledge that helps the husband live with his wife. So just think about this. What knowledge would be useful to you to help you live with another person? Hopefully you get the picture. Your goal is to get to know your wife in a meaningful way, to learn her, and therefore certain areas of knowledge are going to be more helpful than others. I want to help you out with this. I want to propose that you should learn your wife in three different ways. Just get a little more practical with this. Your knowledge should cover at least three categories when it comes to learning your wife. First, start off with a personal knowledge. Personal knowledge. Get to know your wife personally. Find out her likes, her dislikes, her desires, her goals. Go ahead. Find out her favorite color and her favorite flower. Interview your wife. Study her. Get to know her personally. Maybe ask, what are her favorite hobbies? What are her favorite foods? What makes her feel loved? What makes her feel fulfilled? What does she like to do with her free time? Men in the room, of course. You've got to take this list and and run with it and keep going. But the idea is to first study your wife as a person. Secondly, go with a spiritual knowledge. You start off with a personal knowledge, now a, a spiritual knowledge. Get to know your wife spiritually. How is her relationship with the Lord? What are her prayer requests? What is she struggling with? What temptations does she have? Also, what are her fears for the future? What, what frustrates her? What are her spiritual gifts? What are her spiritual weaknesses? And, and then how can you help her with those? It's one thing to know your wife as a person. It's another thing to know her as a spiritual being, as a follower of Christ. So for those, especially here at Married to Believers, this is just as, if not more important. So don't neglect gathering this spiritual knowledge of your wife. And then thirdly, go with a biblical knowledge. Get to know your wife biblically. And what I mean by this is, well... You won't be studying your wife for this one, per se, but rather the Bible. God's word contains so much truth about men and women, you'd be a fool to ignore it. What does the Bible say about women? What does the Bible say about wives, about mothers? Shouldn't you master this knowledge if you are to lead your wife, according to Scripture? Also, What does the Bible say about men, about husbands, about fathers? You need to learn what God is calling you to. Although we all fall short, getting to know whom we are supposed to be, according to Scripture, is essential to your leadership role. Get to know your wife personally, spiritually, biblically. And all this knowledge, though, is for a purpose. Remember that. This knowledge is for a purpose. Knowledge learned but not applied is largely worthless 
unless your goal is just to get on Jeopardy. The purpose of learning about your wife, personally, spiritually, and biblically, is what? So that you might live with her. Remember? Live with her according to knowledge. In other words, you are learning through this knowledge how to live with your wife, how to relate to her, how to treat her, how to regard her, how to react to her, how to lead her. It's such a crucial knowledge, and if you want to have a blessed marriage, you have to apply this, learn and apply. This is getting us back to our first overall instruction for the men, to give consideration. Give consideration. Be understanding. Be thoughtful. This is what we're talking about. Now, of course, you men, you have to bridge the gap between actually learning about your wife and then living with your wife. You have to put those two together. I want to give you a few examples, though, to take this even further in its practical application. Let's start off, start off with that personal knowledge. Let's say that you learned one day, studying your wife, that she hates Subway. You know the restaurant, Subway restaurant. I don't know why someone would hate Subway. but So when you're going out to eat, she says, you pick the place. You think of picking Subway, but then you remember, well, I know my wife doesn't like that, so I'm not going to pick Subway. Or maybe you say, you know, why don't you go to Panda Express? I'll go to Subway. I'll bring my food over, and we'll just do that. And if you haven't guessed, yes, I'm talking about Angela and myself. I don't know why she hates Subway. Every time I, I ask her to go there, she ends up liking it, but then she always still says she hates it. But anyway, made this little compromise with her a couple weeks ago. It's just an example of living with your wife according to knowledge. Now, is that mundane? Yeah, that's very mundane. But sometimes life and marriage are mundane. Even the small things count. But take, a, take the spiritual knowledge, something more serious. Let's say that in studying your wife, you learn that sometimes she struggles with anxiety over the future. Okay, now just think. How could that knowledge help you live with her? Well, for one, you're not going to focus on her fears. You're not going to bring them up or rub them in. Instead, you're going to try and help her trust God more. Maybe you're going to pray more with her about these anxiety issues. Or maybe you're going to read the Bible with her, point her to some Psalms where, where David was struggling with anxiety, but then he trusted in God and God comforted him. You get the picture. This is living with your wife in an understanding way. Step one, learn your wife personally, spiritually, biblically. Step two, live with your wife according to this knowledge. Let this knowledge guide you, your, your actions, your reactions, your leadership. And make this a priority, men in the room. Make this a priority to start learning your wife if you haven't already. And sure, you just live with someone over the years. You get to know them. You learn them. But it might be time to be more proactive in this knowledge. Maybe you're lazy. Maybe you don't like to study. Maybe you never were a good student. What if I gave you a, a million dollars? If you could, in a year's time, just get a, a 70% on the SAT, would you study for it? Yeah, you probably would, because you want a million dollars. Well, what if you were offered a blessed, enriched, and wonderful marriage, if you would just learn your wife and then live with her according to that knowledge, would you do it? The question is then just how much do you value your marriage? Instruction number one for men in the home, give consideration. Give consideration. But we're not quite done, though, with this first one. Not quite finished, because Peter adds this qualifier. He says, live with your wives in an understanding way 
And then he says, as with someone weaker, since she's a woman. The purpose of this qualifying phrase, it's very clear. It is to help us be even more considerate of our wives. But we're confronted with another big question here. What on earth does it mean to call the wife weaker? What's he saying here? It sounds offensive. It sounds derogatory. What what does he mean? We're going to do some more digging. I'm going to take you through this one. I want to help you best I can really to try and arrive at the meaning of this on your own. I want to help you see this for yourselves. So we're going to put on our Bible study hats for a little bit, and I want to take you through this. When we're studying the Bible, we have to start with, for one, the context. According to the context, what is Peter trying to get across here? What is his intention in saying this? Or let me ask you this. Is he trying to make a positive statement or a negative statement? Positive. He's making a positive statement. Whatever it means to say that women are weaker, Peter intends this not to demean women. No, the fact that they are weaker should foster a greater respect and honor for them. This is not a negative statement. It's a positive statement. Peter isn't saying anything derogatory at all. But he's providing a reason that women should be treated even better. Whatever Peter means by this, it is not to insult or demean women. We can also discern from the context that whatever this weakness refers to, whatever it is, it's going to be something that husbands are prone to take advantage of. That's going to be something that will come back later, so keep that in mind. All right, second, let's take a closer look at the words being used here. What are these words that we have? The phrase, someone weaker, can more literally be rendered weaker vessel. Vessel can refer to pottery, a pottery jar, a container. Metaphorically, it refers to the human body. Many scriptures use this word to refer to us humans as being weak clay vessels. We're all vessels in the eyes of God. That'll come back later, so hold on to that one. Also notice this. Peter doesn't call women weak. He calls them weaker. He says they are weaker vessels. implies that men are also weak vessels. Only women being more so, whatever that means. So whatever it is, it applies to men and women. And finally, Peter adds that the wife is a weaker vessel. And he says, because she is a woman. It's a very rare word for woman being used here. It refers to her femininity. And whatever this weakness refers to, it has to refer or it deals with her essential nature as a woman. It is part of being a woman. That's what it is. So this is a good start. But we're still left with some interpretive options as to what this might mean. So I think the best thing we can do now is to go through these one by one and just start ruling things out. Let's see, does this fit? Does this fit or not? What are all the possible ways in which one person might be weaker than another person? I think of five ways. So let me put these before you. Five ways that this could be the case or five ways the wife could be weaker. First, intellectually. Are women intellectually inferior to men? Scripture never says or even hints that women are intellectually inferior to men. In history, women have been less educated than men, but that doesn't have to do with their intelligence or their their being. That just has to do with the level of education. Also, women mature faster than men. So at a given age, you could even argue that women are more intelligent than men. At the very least, there's no support for this from Scripture otherwise. I think we can rule this one out. Second, emotionally, 
are women emotionally weaker than men? I, I kind of think that's the caricature today, but I don't think this is the case. Men are just as emotional as women. We just display a different set of emotions. Women may be more prone to anxiety. Men may be more prone to anger, for example. Would you call that a, a superior emotion? I don't think so. Again, nothing in Scripture hints that men are emotionally superior to women. And there's no connection to the context. This one doesn't fit. Maybe third, it's morally. Are women more wicked than men? And believe it or not, the Romans believed this. They believed all three of these first ones, by the way, that women were intellectually and emotionally and morally inferior. But I hardly think this is true. Men commit more violent crimes than women. They're more aggressive than women. They commit more murders than women in a 10 to 1 ratio. Also, the Bible teaches that all are lost, sinful, and depraved, men and women alike. If anything, though, I think the man would be more morally corrupt. Perhaps it's number four, spiritually. Are women spiritually weaker or inferior to men? This one is definitely not the case. In the same verse, Peter's going to go on to say that they are co-heirs, fellow heirs of the grace of life. Also, Galatians 3.28 says that men and women are one in Christ. The New Testament is crystal clear that both sexes are equally loved, valued, and saved before God. So this one does not fit. And we're down to one final option that I could think of, and that is physically. Are women physically weaker than men? The answer is yes, pretty much. It would be extremely hard even for the feminist to say otherwise. It's just a a fact of of God's creation of nature. Every now and then uh, you see a guy who marries a a girl who's stronger than him. But probably 99 out of 100 times, it's just not the case. The woman is weaker. That's not derogatory. It's just simply God's design. And think about this. When you consider all the Olympic records for all the different events, the men always perform better. For the running events, the 100 meter, 200, 400, 800, 1500, 5K, 10K, and marathon, the men consistently run 10% faster. For the jumping events, the high jump, the long jump, the pole vault, the men consistently jump 15% higher. And then for all the strength events, the shot put, the discus, the javelin, the women can actually throw nearly the same distance as men. But the men are throwing objects 50% heavier. So all the way through, it's just by God's design that men are stronger. The question is, is this what Peter has in mind, though? And the answer is yes. It does fit the context. Whatever this weakness is, remember, it has to be something that men use in order to take advantage of women. And I think physical strength has to top that list. Also, it fits with the words weaker vessel. Clay vessels are viewed as being physically weak, prone to cracking, breaking. Men and women are both frail creatures like this. Although Peter is saying the woman is more so. Scripture does not contradict this view. It affirms this natural creation order, a simple fact of life. And I think it's the best view. So with that in mind, let's boil it down now and really get to the meaning. Peter is saying that wives, being female, are physically weaker. And because of this... They're more prone to abuse. Seeing that they're called to submit, this really opens up ungodly husbands to physically control their wives and and beat them into submission. So Peter takes this opportunity to tell husbands that 
because their wives are weaker, they must all the more so live with them understandingly. Men need to regard and treat their wives as delicate creatures. Men are like 7-Eleven Big Gulp cups. You could drag them behind a car, and they don't break. They're still good. You can still drink out of it. But women are like crystal glasses. And they're, they're delicate. They're, they're fragile. It's not derogatory. It's just who they are. It's the point here. Men, do not use your strength to take advantage of your wife, but be mindful of her as, as more fragile and therefore be more considerate of her. Guys, just, just treat your wives well. Treat them like something you value. Women may be weaker, clay vessels, but far from being derogatory, this weakness is an occasion for greater honor, greater respect, greater consideration. And putting this all together now, we have a simple, direct, and important first instruction for husbands. Live with your wives. Get to know them personally, spiritually, biblically, and then live with them graciously in light of that knowledge. Learn them, live with them, be considerate. Keep in mind that God has made them to be more fragile than yourself, so protect them and cherish them like anything you value. Be considerate. That's number one. We're on to our second instruction for the men. Number one was give consideration. Number two now is to give honor. That's secondly, give honor. Let's read verse 7 again. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. We've got a few questions with this part of the verse as well, but they're not too bad. First, what are husbands being told to do here? It is to give honor, to show their wives honor. This is the second verb in this verse. It's also in the present tense. It also carries the force of a command. So husbands, continually show your wives honor. To honor someone means to highly value them, to highly regard them. Whereas the first instruction for men covers their actions toward their wives, the second instruction covers their attitude toward their wives. What does this look like? Well, let's use the analogy of children. Children are given two basic commands in Scripture. Obey your parents and honor your parents. What would you make of the child who obeys his parents diligently? He always does what they say, but he gives them an attitude with his obedience. He argues, he complains, he fights, he yells, he name calls, he disrespects. Yes, I mean, technically he's being obedient, but he is not honoring his parents. It's the same for husbands. Your first instruction is give consideration. Your second instruction is to give honor. So what would you make of the husband who is very considerate and understanding of his wife? But he tears her down, he disrespects her, he complains about her, yells at her, and calls her names. He's not showing her honor. Husbands, continually give honor to your wife. And just, just like before, this, this verse comes with a qualifier. He says, show her honor as what? As a fellow heir of the grace of life. The fact that your wife is a fellow heir of the grace of life should motivate you to, again, all the more so, give her honor. 
But we have to ask now, what, what does that mean? What is the grace of life? There's one minority view. In fact, I found just one person who holds to this view that the grace of life refers to marriage itself. This view is based on the context loosely, but it really ignores all the words being used here, and it's not the best view. Life in the New Testament. Let's look at these words. Life in the New Testament overwhelmingly is used of eternal life, especially when it's joined with the word grace. We enter into this life by grace through Christ. Also, one of Peter's themes in 1 Peter is the grace of God, and he uses it over and over again to refer to the means by which we receive eternal life and our eternal inheritance. And this all fits with the last word here, which is heir, which speaks of the hope we have of receiving this eternal life by grace. Grace, life, and heir are never used together to refer to marriage in Scripture, not even two of the three, but they all consistently refer to this eternal life. The case is pretty overwhelming. Grace of life refers to eternal life. So now just consider the force of what Peter is saying, though. What's the force of it? First, he's pointing out the wife is spiritually equal to the husband. He's pointing out the spiritual equality of husband and wife. They are co-heirs of eternal life, fellow heirs. The husband may have more authority as the head. He may be physically stronger, but in the eyes of God, they're on a level playing field spiritually. Men and women equally access the same redemption, the same forgiveness, the same atonement, the same salvation, the same gift of the Spirit, the same church membership, the same salvation, the same eternal life, the same place in heaven, and so on. And far from demeaning women, Peter says they are co-heirs. And additionally, because of this fact that men and women are fellow heirs of the grace of life, men should honor their wives even more. And that's the real point Peter's making here. If you dishonor them and tear them down and treat them harshly, you are doing so to one for whom Christ died. The Savior spilt his blood for them, so would you demean them? God has made them his children, yet would you treat them poorly? Such dishonor should never come from a child of God or be given to a child of God. A side note here. Other religions of the world, both ancient and modern, they've always preached a disparity in paradise between men and women. You know, what the man gets is always way better than what the woman gets in heaven of all the other world religions. In fact, I don't think there's any religion that I've heard of that, that sees men and women as truly fellow heirs in an eternal sense like this. For example, I think the classic example is Islam. Men who die, so it's said, enter the ultimate paradise, receiving palaces of gold, some 80,000 servants, 72 perpetual virgins. Heard of that? However, according to Islam, most women are inherently evil and their ultimate destiny is hell. Muhammad explained one of his visions and said, quote, I stood at the gate of the fire hell and I saw that the majority of those who entered it were women. End quote. When a woman asked Muhammad why there were more women in hell than men, he replied, quote, you curse frequently and are ungrateful to your husbands. I've not seen anyone more deficient in intelligence and religion than you. End quote. If a woman does make it to paradise, the best she really can hope for is to be reunited with her husband and children. However, it all depends, since husbands can have multiple wives, 
The husband gets to pick if he wants to stay with that wife or not in paradise. Certainly, though, it's just not a picture of men and women as fellow heirs, as co-heirs. And God's truth in the Bible tells a different story. Finishing off verse 7 now, let's get back on track. We find that this second instruction is accompanied by a warning of sorts. As a corollary, if you do not show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, your prayers, he says, prayers can be hindered. Hinder, it's a military term, meaning to interrupt or to obstruct. At the end of World War II, as the Germans were being defeated and retreating back, they started to blow up their own bridges and tear up all their own railroad tracks. Why would they do that? They wanted to hinder the advance of the Allied troops. That's what we're talking about here, to hinder. Likewise, God himself, as a form of discipline, will hinder. He will interrupt your own prayer life if you do not heed these instructions. This warning is actually a reflection of a very consistent teaching in Scripture that if you are not right with others horizontally, don't expect to be right with God vertically. Your relationships matter. Christ expressed a similar thought in the Sermon on the Mount. I'll just read for you Matthew 5, 23 and 24. He says, Therefore, if you are presenting your offering on the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar. And go first, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Same principle in that verse. And even Peter himself goes on to say in the next section that you are to be righteous in all your behavior, treating, your, uh, treating all with love and kindness. Look over with me at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 12. We'll get to this next week. He says, verse 12, For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Don't expect an effective prayer life or spiritual life if you are living in conflict with others, including your wife. This is serious stuff. Husbands, you can short-circuit your own leadership and really make yourself ineffective if you are not living with your wives in an understanding way and showing them honor. God doesn't say anything like this to the wives. He only says this to the husbands. Because you are the leaders. And together these two instructions form fitting words for the husbands. Give consideration to your wives. Give honor. Lest your prayers be hindered. I think both of these fit under that overall category of of husbands loving your wives as Christ loved the church. These, These fit under that umbrella term. And they are the simple secrets to a blessed marriage and a blessed life. As a final thought here, I want to speak directly to the husbands in the room. Like I said, obviously this text is aimed mostly at you. So how are you doing? How is your marriage going? Maybe your marriage is going great. You don't have much conflict. And when you do, it gets resolved biblically, which is truly important. You're loving, you're honoring her, she's respecting you. Neither of you are perfect, but you're doing well. Things are good. If this is you, well, praise God. Excel still more. Keep pursuing because we will never attain that perfect standard. We will always fall short. Keep pursuing. Keep running the race. Keep excelling still more. Keep at it. Perhaps things, though, aren't so great 
right now for you. You bicker, you fight all the time. Conflicts don't get resolved. There's no repentance exchanged. You don't get along. Both of you are unhappy. It's just not working right now. You don't really know why. All you know is that if she would just change, if she would act differently, if she would become godlier, things would get better. Do you think that's accurate? Let me ask you, for the men, how is your prayer life? Specifically, are you regularly and daily praying for your wife, for her sanctification, or maybe she's an unbeliever, pray for her salvation? And did you notice that in verse 7, Peter outright assumes that the husbands are praying? He just assumes it. Are you praying for her spiritual growth and maturity? Are you praying for your, your problems? When I see people complaining against another person, a pastor, an elder, a spouse, a child, a boss, whoever, I always ask them if they have been daily praying for that person, that they would grow and the conflict would be resolved. The answer is always no. And if the answer is no, your complaining is sinful. Philippians 2.14. If you really love the person as you should, you would not be part of the problem by complaining. You'd be part of the solution by praying. Husbands, if you really think your wives need to grow and change that much, but you're not praying for that, what do you expect? It's called lazy and absent spiritual leadership. Additionally, let me ask you, how are you actively leading your wife? Are you reading the Bible together? Are you sacrificing for her? Are you learning her? Are you living with her according to that knowledge? Are you lifting her up and honoring her? Are you measuring up to the standard that God has called you to? And again, if the answer is no, if you're not leading, loving, praying, studying, understanding, honoring, then are you really surprised that your marriage is not flourishing? Who do you think is responsible for this? Us guys are, are quick to point the finger. We love to blame. And I know you want to blame your wife. She's not godly enough. She's the problem, but you are the leader. You have the authority that comes with being the head, but you also have the responsibility that comes with being the head. You lead, she follows. So if your leadership has gone off track, what do you expect? And who's responsible? The solution is not to complain, not to point the finger, not to get angry. First and foremost, it's just to get your leadership back on track. And all of us need to hear that. Get your leadership back on track. I'm not trying to discourage you right now. Peter is not trying to discourage you right now. We all fall short as husbands and as wives, as leaders and as followers, everyone in the room. Don't be discouraged. Be humble, however. Be humble about it, realizing that you also fall short. Show your wife some grace in her shortcomings. It's hard to do. But isn't that what God does to us? He shows us grace. That's what we need to strive after, to show grace, to be patient, to be humble, also, be challenged, men. Be challenged to rise up to the occasion and to grow as a leader. If you're not living with your wife according to knowledge, if you're not showing her honor, then change. Ease off some of the pressure you're putting on your wife. Put it on yourself and change. Be challenged, be humble, and grow. Wives, don't, don't beat up on your husbands. Encourage them in their role as you want to be encouraged in your role. I think that's the real key here, that it's that attitude of mutual respect and encouragement and grace 
that's the real key to a, a harmonious and blessed relationship. Back to the men. Don't, don't let these instructions this morning fall on deaf ears. We've covered the two of them. Be considerate, or rather, give consideration, give honor. Don't let them fall on deaf ears. These are two instructions none of us can afford to ignore. Father in heaven, we thank you for these words from your scripture, from your truth. Pray for myself and all the husbands that we would indeed rise to the occasion and grow in this standard. I confess for all of us that we all fall short and we all are sinful beings before you. Help us to excel still more, to strive after godliness, to grow as husbands. May we first learn what you call us to. May we second learn our wives. May we third live with them according to that knowledge. Bless us and bless us, church. May we have so many examples of godly functioning marriages and so many success stories and trophies of your grace on our shelves here at this church. I pray for the wives that they would grow in their role as well, that they would be loving and respecting their husbands, giving them grace as well. That's what it takes for all of us, giving grace to one another, being humble and patient with all. Bless this church as we do this and as we go forth from here. May we honor you and live for you, not forgetting what we've learned, seeking to daily put it into practice. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.